Chapter Twenty of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under Fire. The coroner sternly motioned Robert to his seat. Your testimony will come later, Lord Portstead. The Honorable Archibald Clavering is the next witness. Upon Robert's angry insistence that he be allowed to testify then and there, Lord Meldrum stepped forward and, taking him by the arm, forcibly drew him back. Meldrum then, with tender concern, assisted Lady Ursula from the stand. It was all done so naturally and so unobtrusively that the coroner gave him a glance of appreciation. When Mr. Clavering took the stand, he found himself in the most uncomfortable position he had ever before been placed in. There was but one idea clear in his head, and that was his determination to shield Meldrum at any cost, though he had little confidence in his ability to do so, especially when the coroner proceeded to trip him up in his simplest statements, and so contort them that he hardly knew what he had said. He judged from the furious glances that Robert directed at him that he was making a bad matter worse. Swiftly, the coroner turned the questioning into the channel he dreaded, and he looked in despair at Meldrum, as admission after admission was wrung from him. The coroner was bent upon proving that a violent quarrel had taken place in the library between Meldrum and the late Earl, with Lady Ursula as the cause, and Mr. Clavering realized that in spite of his best efforts, his testimony was only serving to implicate his friend. Burton apparently did not like the trend of affairs, and he passed another card to the coroner. That official read it with a shade of annoyance, and the inquiry was brought around again to Robert. In response to a direct question, Mr. Clavering reluctantly confessed that he had met the claims of Robert's most insistent creditors, and so saved him from arrest. "'At the present Lord Portstead's request?' asked the coroner. "'No,' said Mr. Clavering in his stiffest manner. "'At whose request, then?' Mr. Clavering looked regretfully at Lady Ursula. His innate chivalry revolted at the necessity of again introducing her name. At his sister's request, he finally admitted, when pressed. Here Burton was ready with another card. The coroner, angered at his officiousness, bade him remember who was in charge of the inquest. But nevertheless he asked the question upon the card. "'Has the present Lord Portstead, in your presence, or, to your knowledge, ever uttered threats or shown feelings of vindictiveness toward his deceased brother?' Mr. Clavering was dismayed at the question, and at a loss how to reply. His mind reviewed with painful clarity that dinner on Tuesday night when Robert had openly insulted his brother. Both words and manner had conveyed a threat. "'We are waiting, Mr. Clavering,' the coroner reminded him. He contrived to pull himself together. Something had to be said. "'The present Lord Portstead is of a, uh, impetuous nature,' he evaded. "'He may, in a moment of impatience, have been a little, uh, unguarded in his speech.' "'In short, then, you have heard him use violent speech of his brother, even to him?' Mr. Clavering, alarmed at the pitfall he was rushing into, made a desperate attempt to retreat. "'I am unwilling to state that his language was actually violent. I should term it, uh, impetuous.' such as any man in a moment of irritation might use. "'You mean to imply, then, that the present Lord Portstead is of a highly impetuous but not vindictive nature?' "'Just that, just that,' Mr. Clavering assented with hasty relief. For some reason the coroner was content to let this analysis of Robert's character stand, 
Mr. Clavering later saw why. "'Have you?' inquired the coroner slowly. "'Ever heard any other person use violent, or shall we call it impetuous language to, or in regard to, the deceased?' This question put Mr. Clavering in great puzzlement. What was the coroner leading up to? "'I cannot recall that I have,' he finally said. The coroner's next question revealed his purpose. He was bringing the inquiry back to the starting point. "'You have stated that Lord Meldrum has been actively the deceased Earl's political opponent for a space of six years. In that time has he, in your presence, or, to your knowledge, uttered threats or shown vindictiveness toward the deceased?' There was a tense silence in the hall. All felt that this question, so abruptly leading the inquiry back to its starting point, and that starting point, Lord Meldrum, was more or less in the nature of an accusation. Yet not a muscle in Meldrum's face or body moved as every eye turned toward him. He continued to gaze steadily and calmly at the coroner. But Mr. Clavering trembled with indignation and fear for his friend. "'I have known Lord Meldrum since he was a boy,' he replied with heat, and there is not a trace of vindictiveness in his nature. The coroner favored him with an incredulous smile, and upon this dismissed him. Mr. Clavering resumed his seat with a sense of having utterly failed in his attempt to shield Meldrum. He had made numberless damaging admissions which, while in no way clearing Robert's name, had aroused suspicion against Meldrum, and even involved Lady Ursula as a possible accessory. "'Don't take it so hard, old man,' said Meldrum consolingly. You did your best. Colonel Darrell and Sir Gerald Leslie were the next witnesses called, but their examinations were brief and revealed little of interest. Elsie Baring's testimony followed theirs and was drawn from her with difficulty and only by dint of persistent questioning. In her endeavors to shield Robert, she answered the coroner's searching queries regarding Meldrum in such a way as to increase the suspicion against him, and she admitted having accused him of complicity in the murder. Burton could not allow her to depart without an attempt to make her incriminate Robert, so by means of another card he forced from the frightened girl the admission that some time after midnight on Tuesday she had from her window seen approach the manor a man who might have been Robert Sylvester. Burton was at little pains to conceal his satisfaction, as Robert was called next. Lady Ursula turned a shade whiter, and Elsie Baring slipped her hand into hers. Robert's attitude was puzzling, a mixture of defiance, sullenness, and fear, in no way calculated to win him sympathy. The coroner wasted little time in preamble, but abruptly asked Robert if it were true that he had returned to the manor Tuesday after midnight. "'Yes,' admitted Robert, with a scowl at Burton. Lady Ursula caught her breath sharply and cast an appealing glance at Robert, but he persistently looked away from her. "'What was the hour of your lordship's return?' pursued the coroner. "'I didn't consult my watch,' growled Robert. "'It might have been a little before two. "'You know as well as I do that it was,' asserted Robert surlily. The coroner plainly resented his manner, and his voice was harsh and peremptory as he asked, "'Why should you return at that hour? "'Had you not been practically ordered out of the house by your brother?' "'It was not the first time he had ordered me out,' said Robert bitterly. "'I came back because I needed money.' "'How did you enter the manor?' "'By the garden door into the library. It was open.' "'Who was in the library?' "'My brother.' "'Was he alone?' "'Yes.' "'Did he remain alone with you?' "'Yes,' sharply. "'You are sure?' 
"'I tell you he was alone with me and remained alone with me,' reiterated Robert with a dogged scowl. "'Then your sister, the Lady Ursula, was not in the library?' Robert turned upon him with a smothered oath. "'What are you trying to insinuate?' "'I must ask your lordship to keep your temper,' rebuked the coroner severely. "'If your sister was not in the library, where was she then?' "'How should I know? In bed and asleep, I suppose.' "'Did you apply to your brother for money?' "'Yes.' "'With what result?' "'The usual one. Not a shilling would he give me.' The coroner regarded Robert gravely. Did he not realize the bad impression he was creating by his ill-concealed bitterness toward his brother, or was he too desperate to care? "'Then what happened?' the coroner asked. Robert's jaw dropped. "'What happened?' he echoed, casting a furtive glance at his sister. "'Nothing happened. I went away.' The coroner consulted his notes. "'Where were you, my lord, when the pistol-shot occurred?' "'In—in the gardens,' he said thickly. "'Not in the library?' suggested the coroner. Robert flung up his head with a defiant gesture. "'What's the use of my denying it? Nobody will believe me.' Lady Ursula rose as though in protest, but at a warning look from Robert she sat down again, her slender hands clenched together. The coroner opened a narrow box on the table in front of him, and drew out a silver-mounted pistol. "'Is this your pistol?' he asked curtly. Robert's mouth quivered. The sweat-drop stood out on his brow. "'It is my pistol.' His voice was hardly louder than a hoarse whisper. "'Very well, that will do,' said the coroner quietly. The next witness was a young man who proved to be a clerk from a well-known London ammunition store. Robert walked unsteadily to his seat beside his sister, and remained with face hidden in his hands during the whole of the young clerk's testimony, which consisted in proving that the bullet found in the deceased Earl's body had been discharged from a pistol of the size and make of Robert's. The cylinder, with its one empty chamber, was then shown to the jury. Elsie Baring slightly and involuntarily recoiled from Robert, but Lady Ursula slipped her hand within his arm, flashing a peculiarly bitter glance at Lord Meldrum. He responded by one that was reassuring and yet sad. Mr. Clavering felt decidedly nervous when he heard Mary Gray's name called next, but his fears became allayed as he found that she confined herself to the briefest and most evasive answers, and made no mention whatever of the particles of mud on the library floor, her excursion into the woods, nor even her acquaintance with Mavis Travers. He was both relieved and surprised that she should conceal these facts. He, too, had somehow succeeded in doing so. Indeed, she glossed over in every way the evidence against both Robert and Meldrum, to the very visible indignation of Burton, who had been besieging the coroner with cards from the moment she stepped upon the stand, flashing an elusive smile in his direction. She corroborated Mr. Clavering's by no means coherent story of the recovery of Lady Pevensey's necklace, the theft of which evidently appeared to the coroner the starting point of the mystery and crime which overhung the manor. Viewed in any aspect, the return of the necklace was unaccountable. Mary Gray said she should not presume to account for it, but stamped as absurd Burton's elaborate theory, revealed by the questions instigated by him, that Robert was the thief and that he had lain concealed in the north wing from directly after the murder until a day or so later, and that then, owing to pressure brought to bear upon him, or difficulty in disposing of the necklace, had been induced to return it. "'Mr. Burton's theories are ingenious, and so interesting,' she said sweetly. "'But,' with an expressive elevation of her eyebrows, 
quite impossible this brought upon her a savage frown from burton and a stern reproof from the coroner who informed her that she was there to state facts and not to ridicule the logical theories of an experienced and official detective she acknowledged her error with a maddening little smile and then coolly went on to explode others of burton's obviously apparent theories without however advancing any of her own the coroner in despair finally dismissed her not a single new fact had he succeeded in eliciting then was called the witness whose testimony mr clavering dreaded above all else the secretary harry brooks mr clavering's fears had not been in vain this time with little or no attempt to conceal his hatred of lord meldrum brooks dwelt in detail upon every incriminating fact against him the deceased earl's well-known objection to his attentions to lady ursula the resultant coolness between the two men bordering upon open hostility on the day of the murder the late interview in the library and meldrum's presence in the gardens when the body was discovered he further cited meldrum's active opposition to the political measures that portstead was drafting and the disappearance of these papers following upon the murder there was no doubt that the secretary's testimony made a profound impression upon coroner jury and spectators he had proved that meldrum had both incentive and opportunity mr clavering glanced apprehensively at meldrum he was regarding the malignant little secretary with the tolerance of good-natured contempt robert had raised his head and was staring at brooks with bewilderment and indignation while lady ursula with eyes aflame seemed to be struggling with a desire to cry out her anger against him her attitude had for some time puzzled and distressed mr clavering and he was inclined to resent her coldness toward meldrum he felt that she owed at least loyalty to the man who loved her convinced as he was that she possessed secret knowledge of the murder he thought that she was treating meldrum with injustice and that her own conduct was hardly less suspicious than his in the light of what the inquest had brought forth yet now at brooks's accusations she was impatient to defend meldrum and denounce his accuser mr clavering acknowledged that the ways of women were inexplicable and now meldrum was called as he came quietly forward in response to his name tension in the hall ran high there was much craning of necks and jostling one another to obtain a better view of the fair-haired powerfully built typically english man stood up there in open court for the delectation as it were of the idle and the curious meldrum faced that sea of eyes some mocking or contemptuous others merely inquisitive a few compassionate and some even horrified not with defiance or a palpably studied indifference but with a manly composure that won him a certain degree of respect and sympathy even from that sensation-seeking irresponsible crowd but it is doubtful if in those first few moments he saw or was even conscious of any one in the hall save lady ursula on whose sorrowful drawn face his calm gaze was fixed the coroner opened the examination by inquiring whether harry brooks had exaggerated the importance of the missing government papers meldrum replied that on the contrary their disappearance must be a very grave loss to the late earl's constituents but again to your lordship's constituents pressed the coroner i think i may say so yes meldrum replied slowly a distinct gain this admission or avowal cost him sympathy but though he was aware of it his composure remained unshaken the coroner was somewhat taken aback by his frankness but recovering himself 
asked if the interview in the library had had to do with these papers. Meldrum replied that it had not. "'With what, then, did it have to do?' "'With matters of a private nature,' Meldrum answered, with evenness, but none the less with finality. The coroner recognized the uselessness of attempting to press the point. He knew enough of men to realize that under Meldrum's correct civility lay a substratum of indomitable reserve that no amount of cross-examining could break through. He leaned back in his chair a moment and made a rapid analysis of his uncompromising adversary, for as adversaries he had come to regard those who stood before him in the witness-box. He saw, as others saw, the typical man of the English upper classes, correct in bearing, faultless in appearance, his face high-bred and impassive, the hair of that fairness of tint which shows gold in the highlights, neatly groomed, the clothes perfectly tailored, and the hands, though large and slightly bronzed from the open-air life Meldrum loved, shapely and carefully tended. But the coroner saw more than this. He saw the severity of the eyes, the rigidity of the mouth, a baffling and inscrutable purpose that he knew would never falter. He had an irresistible desire to fathom this purpose, the more because he was dimly certain that he would not be able to do so. Having measured his opponent, he returned again to the attack. "'Was your interview with the deceased Earl of an amicable character?' "'Of an indifferent character,' replied Meldrum, with unruffled placidity. "'You parted on friendly terms?' "'We parted with civility.' There was again a pause. The coroner closed his eyes and stroked his chin. He felt the steel reserve in Meldrum's polite tone. He tried now a deeper thrust, permitting his voice to appear harsh and his manner increasingly authoritative. "'Do you assert that you went directly into the gardens after the interview?' "'I do not assert it,' said Meldrum, to everybody's amazement. "'What do you mean by that?' demanded the coroner sharply. That baffling rigidity tightened about Meldrum's mouth. "'Simply that I do not assert it,' he responded with unalterable calm. The coroner leaned back in his chair in irritated perplexity. After a moment he sat forward quite fiercely, and again began his attack upon that steel composure. He thrust obliquely this time. "'How long after the interview was it before you went into the gardens?' Lord Meldrum did not attempt to evade the thrust. "'I prefer not to state,' he said straightforwardly and without emotion." Lady Ursula dropped her face in her hands with a smothered sob. Like Robert, she had broken beyond all conventional restraint, and showed herself what she was, a soul-wrung creature. A gasp went round the hall, a wave of excitement, the indrawing of many breaths. Meldrum alone was quite unmoved. "'Lord Meldrum,' demanded the coroner trenchantly, "'do you realize the seriousness of your refusal to answer this question?' "'I think so.' still with that rigid calm. Mr. Clavering stifled a groan. Meldrum was bent on destroying himself. And for whom? There was a nameless dread at his heart. He glanced at Lady Ursula's blanched face. She was staring now at Meldrum with a pitiful intensity. Great heavens! It could not be! A question of the coroner concerning Robert's pistol startled him from these broodings. Has the pistol marked with the name of Robert Sylvester ever been in your possession? Meldrum deliberated. There was a tense wait. From all those many people came not so much as a breath. Meldrum was plainly weighing his answer. At last, he said, in the same emotionless voice, "'It has been in my possession.' At this, Robert's face showed utter bewilderment, 
unbelief. Whisperings rose to loud murmurs, and a girl at the back of the hall giggled hysterically. "'Silence there!' cried the usher. The coroner was quick to press his point. If he could not shiver the steel, he yet might chip it. "'Was this pistol in your possession Tuesday night?' The poise of Meldrum's head grew more rigid, but there was no tremor of his lids or quiver of his mouth. "'I think,' he said steadily, "'that I am justified in refusing to answer.' That ended his examination. There was a commotion in the audience. Lady Ursula had fainted. End of chapter 20